So we're into week five of our series on James. Um, And I don't know about you, but I have been enjoying this. It is very practical. It is also very challenging because we spend our time um, working out and looking at what God is saying um, and what, uh, how our lives should reflect God's word. And that's challenging. We heard a couple of weeks ago um, that we are to be not just hearers of God's word, but doers. Many of us are very good at hearing God's word, but we are not so good at doing it. And so that's been the challenge of this book. And we've looked at a few things. And if you've missed um, at any point along the way, there are um, there's, uh, all the sermons are on YouTube. You can watch them. But we saw at the start of the series that James is an incredible book because it is written by James, who was the half-brother of Jesus. And as he writes this book, he is speaking from the perspective of someone who has had a transformed life. So we know that James, when um, Jesus um, was uh, in his, his years of ministry, that James uh, was a skeptic, that Jesus' family didn't believe that he was who he says he was, and that we know that when uh, after Jesus' death and resurrection, he appeared to James, and in James there was a life transformed. James didn't meet the resurrected Jesus and say, okay, you've got me, now I believe, and then go back to living the way he used to live. He discovered that in knowing Christ, that there was a new way of living that he was supposed to step into, that through the grace of God, he was empowered to live in. And so that is what this book is about. And we saw in this, at the start of the series that we will keep coming back to over and over and over again, that the message of James is actually quite simple. It is that people who know Christ should act like they know Christ. People who know Christ should act like they know Christ. And so we've seen this. James is sometimes called the Proverbs of the New Testament, and you can see that connection because it is so practical. And I want to um, challenge you today because some of the things that we've heard over the last couple of weeks are, in terms of our doctrine, our, our understanding of what we believe, have been pretty simple. Okay, We've seen that we shouldn't show prejudice, that we should accept people as unique uh, creations of God, that they are dearly loved by Him, and that they should be dearly loved by us, and they should be treated equally. We've seen um, some, some things like we can journey through seasons of trouble and trial and still um, encounter God's goodness and his wisdom and his peace through those seasons. So we can understand those things. Today we are actually going somewhere a lot more challenging and James's um, uh, writing, um, the book so far, has been building to this point. And so we are going to cover a topic today which is one that many of us, regardless of how long we've been in church, whether it's been from the moment we were born, whether it's been for the last couple of weeks, it doesn't matter. This is one of the areas where it is really easy for us to get tripped up, where it is really easy for us to get confused about what we believe. And so we are going to enter some more difficult space today, and I hope that you've got your uh, thinking brains with you. Um, When I say that, I sound like a teacher, don't I? Pop your thinking caps on. This is a thinking cap sermon. And we're going to go into this tricky space. But what I want to say to you now, and I'm saying it up front while you're all still listening, is that if this sermon, um, this is like a 30-minute summary of a very complex topic. And so if you walk out of here thinking in your heart and in your mind that that was outrageous, that is different to everything I've ever been taught, and I don't know if it's correct, And don't walk out of here and just live with that confusion. Come and have a chat. We'll we'll catch up. 
myself, one of the rest of the team, we'll catch up, we'll have a coffee together, we'll work it through. Because don't just take it here and then never think about it again. I want you to mull it over. Um, so we're going to read through the whole section together. Normally we work verse by verse, but let's read the whole section together. So if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to James 2, and we're in verse 14. It says this, What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you are a brother or sister who has food, no food or clothing, and you say, "Good." Um, suppose you see a brother or sister, sorry, who has no food or clothing, and you say, "Goodbye and have a good day. Stay warm and eat well." But then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough unless it produces good deeds. It is dead and useless. Now, someone may argue some people have faith, others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. You say you have faith, for you believe that there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this and they tremble in terror. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? Don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham was shown to be right with God by his actions? when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. You see, his faith and his actions worked together. His actions made his faith complete. And so it happened, just as the scriptures say, Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. He was even called a friend of God. So you see, we are shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. Rahab the prostitute is another example. She was shown to be right with God by her actions when she hid those messengers and sent them safely away by a different road. Just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith is dead without good works. wonder how challenging that might feel for you this morning because you might be sitting there and thinking, this is outrageous. This is outrageous. Works, deeds. We've been told and we're being taught over and over, and the Bible says over and over and over that it is not our works, but it is, but it is our faith. That our forgiveness in Christ is because of his sacrifice and our faith in him, not because of the things that we've done. And so if you're thinking that this morning, you're probably thinking back to passages in Scripture like Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, which says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Or you might be thinking about Romans uh, chapter 3 and verse 24, uh, 23, which says, For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard, yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. And so we read those passages. Many of us who have been in church for a little while have been taught those things. And then we read what we've just read, where James says, what good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? And then he writes in verse 17, so you see faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and it is useless. It sounds together like 
it contradicts, doesn't it? It seems like Paul is saying through these passages that we've read that we are saved by faith in Christ, not because of our works. And it seems like James is saying the opposite. It seems like James is putting out there an argument for a works-based salvation, that it is actually through the things that we do that we are made right with God. But I say to you this morning, and this is the place we're going to get to at the end of the message, but I'm going to give you the the, uh, core of it up front, that James and Paul are actually in complete agreement. They're actually in complete agreement. You see, their words actually fit together. A man named uh, Simon Manchester, who um, is a a theologian and a preacher, put a lot better than I. Um, So I'm going to read a little bit of what he wrote. He said, Paul is thinking of the person who needs to be saved. What does he say to the person who needs to be saved? He says, put away your works. It doesn't matter how wonderful you are. Don't tell me what a good person you are. It won't impress God. It won't win your salvation. Just put out two empty, humble hands and take hold of Jesus and you'll be saved. And on the other hand, James is looking at the Sunday 10 o'clock congregation and he's describing what it means to be saved. That eternal life brings change or revolution. James is saying to us, Please, friends, don't tell me what you know. Don't recite things to me. I want to know what's happening in your heart. I want to know what is happening when you get behind the front door and the office door, not just the church door. It's a bit confronting, isn't it? Because James is writing to you and to me. He's writing to the slightly sleepy Christian sitting in the pew on a Sunday morning. Um, He's writing to us. He's writing to me. And he's challenging us with some really, really difficult things. You see, uh, Paul and James, they're actually talking about different sides of the same coin because they're both actually talking about faith. And if you're going to write one thing down or capture it in your phone, perhaps it should be this, that Paul is describing the root of our faith and James is talking about the fruit of our faith. So Paul describes to us the root of our faith and James describes to us the fruit of our faith. And it is actually really important that in the middle of this series that we take a moment to remind ourselves of the root of our faith. Because one of the things that I mentioned in the first week that is always concerning when you preach these kinds of really practical books, that people will take it and they will shift their thinking, that they will take it as uh, that we need to be doing all these things to be made right with God because it's so practical. And so in the middle of this series, we're going to pause for a moment and we're going to remind ourselves of the root of our faith. And I want to put it out there that many of you will know this and you'll think I can switch off for the next couple of minutes. But how would you articulate it if someone asked? You see, the root of our faith is that all of us have sinned and that through our sin, we have been separated from God. The root of our faith is that the consequences of that sin is death. But then uh, the scripture paints to us this incredible rescue mission. Right from the book of Genesis where there was that first sin, um, God um, prophesies and, and, and foretells that there is one coming who will ultimately set us free and restore us into relationship with God and that that occurs through Christ's sacrifice, through his perfect life, through his death on the cross, and through his miraculous resurrection, that through faith in him, that we are restored into right relationship with God. In fact, scripture even tells us 
And, and if you're going to memorize a verse and you haven't memorized this one, I'd encourage you to look at it this week. Um, the scripture tells us that there is a clear response for salvation. And that is in Romans 10.9, where it says, If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be saved. I remember my parents um, telling us, as I don't know how old we would have been, maybe 10 or 11, telling us, we want you to memorize this verse. Memorize this verse. Because it is so crucial, because it reminds us over and over again that necessary response for salvation. The moment you feel yourself drifting into works, you can drift back to Romans 10, 9 and remind yourself that it is through declaring with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that you will be saved, that you will be saved. And so we see that the root of our faith is this gospel narrative that it is that faith is what is necessary for salvation, that faith in Christ alone you see, faith um, is necessary in the life of the believer because Scripture tells us this. Ephesians 2 tells us that we are saved by faith. 2 Corinthians 5.9 says that the believer must walk by faith. And then Hebrews 11.6 tells us that it is impossible to please God without faith. You see, this is such a crucial doctrine. We have got to have it better down in our lives that our root, root of our faith uh, uh, is, is this truth. You see, Paul um, was so passionate about this. Last year, for six weeks, we spent some time in the book of Galatians. And, and the book of Galatians is really an appeal to faith. So again, you can view it online. And I'd encourage you that if you weren't here for that, to set aside some time. You can listen to the audio on the website or, or watch the videos um, on the YouTube page. But the book of Galatians is Paul talking to a group of churches in Galatia, drawing them back, trying to compel them back to faith. What had happened was that Paul had gone on these missionary journeys. He'd seen a stack of people come to know Christ. And after him, this group called the Judaizers had come through the churches in Galatia and had tried to convince the new believers, these fledgling new believers, that what they needed on top of faith was also the Jewish law that there were certain customs, there were certain things that they had to do as well as their faith in order to be saved. And Paul um, is so, so strong on this that he writes in Galatians 1.6, I am shocked that you are turning away so soon from God who called you to himself through the loving mercy of Christ. You are following a different way that pretends to be the good news, but is not the good news at all. You are being fooled by those who deliberately twist the truth concerning you see, Paul tells us that if we move away from this root of our faith, that we're actually moving away from the gospel. That if we move away from, from the knowledge that, that our salvation is found in faith in Christ, in the unmerited favor of God, to send his son as the perfect sacrifice, to live and to die and to rise again so that we through faith could enter into new relationship with him. That if we move away from that, we're moving away from the gospel. And Paul is so strong on that, and we spent six weeks unpacking that. You see, the message here, uh, and this is where the coin flips to James, is that we are not saved by good works, but we are saved for a good work. That we are not saved by the things we, are, we, have, we do, anything that we do. I mean, Scripture is very clear that anything we could possibly do to try and make us right with God is just like filthy rags. That it is not a good works that saves us, but once we're saved, God calls us to good works. That's where the 
coin flips. And this is where James is talking not about the root of our faith. He's taking that as given. But he's talking about the fruit of our faith. You see, they often talk about faith like calories. I hate calories. I hate counting calories, as you can probably tell. It's not something that, uh, that I enjoy. I know that I just, I'm amazed at those who do it regularly and, um, and calculate it all. But faith is like calories because you can't see them, but you can see their results, can't you? They say a, a moment on the lips, a lifetime on the hips. That's a little bit like faith. You, you, can't see, um, you can't see it, but you can see the results of it. And this is the major theme running through the letter of James, that if we were to distill it, we'd take it all and try and get one word out of it, which is a dangerous thing sometimes. But if we're trying to distill James down to one word, it would be results. It would be results. And this really isn't news to us because faith is always followed by action. One of the things, I mean, COVID's awful. And there are things that um, so many people have missed out on and it's been really difficult and it still continues to be difficult. Um, but one of the things, I'll be completely honest with you, that I personally have not missed is flying on aeroplanes. Um, I, I would fly a couple of times a year for, for different things, different work things or um, holidays um, because the destination always makes the flight worth it. But I really am not a fan of flying. I don't know very much about the science or the maths of how planes work. And to me, it looks like they shouldn't work. Um, but I've been told over and over again, and um, I was actually having a chat with uh, Mike, um, who, who flies, um, and he's telling me about all this stuff. And, and it's because that I have enough faith that someone smarter than me knows that this works. This, this thing, you know, metal tube can just propel along a, a runway and launch into the air. It's because I have enough faith in that that I actually get on the plane. You came in this morning and you chose a seat, and for most of you it was probably exactly the same seat as you chose last week and the week before. Um, and that's okay, wherever you feel comfortable. But you saw that seat and you had faith that that seat would hold you. Uh, and so you sat down. You see, we have faith and that faith is followed by actions. But James gives us, in this passage we've read, three types of faith. He talks about the faith and he talks about the action that follows. The first type of faith he gives us is in verse 15, where he talks about us as believers. He's talking to believers here that we walk past a fellow believer, so in Christian community, who is hungry and has no clothes, and we say to them, God bless you. I'll be praying for you this week, which is lovely. Maybe we say to them, can I pray for you now? Let's just believe that God's going to bring some provision into your life, that um, some food's miraculously going to turn up on your door, that um, you'll have some money this week to get a, a warm coat. But then we do nothing about it that all we have to give to that person is prayer, and prayer is powerful. But after that, we just kind of bless them in Jesus' name, and we walk out of here, and we do nothing about it. We don't think about it again. James is saying that that is just lip service. James is saying, he says it very strongly, that that is dead faith, because real faith results in the transformation of our heart. Remember, we talked about this in the first week, that when we encounter the reality of Christ, when we come into relationship with him, that our hearts are transformed and out of that heart being transformed, we start to live in a way that is generous, that is giving, that puts others' needs before our own. All of those things are completely contrary to a life of sin. Sin puts me first, but the transformation of our heart through Christ puts other people first. It calls us to a practical faith. The second type of faith that um, James talks about 
is faith that is simply knowledge. He actually says this, and it's a a great line. He says, if you believe there is one God, well, good, because even the demons believe this and they shudder. So he talks about the fact that you can know about God, you can have the knowledge of God, but unless that is actually shaping your life, unless you are moving beyond just knowing about God and stepping into relationship with him, which is a life transformed, which is a new way of living, then it it matters not. So we have to step beyond knowledge. And for many of us, that's the point that we get stuck because we turn up to church We hear about God, we learn a little bit more, which is good. But then it never seeps past our minds and sinks into our spirits and calls us to pursue him. The third type of faith that he talks about is when he gives us a couple of his examples from the Old Testament. And in verses 21 to 26 of the passage we just read, he talks about another type of faith, which is a dynamic life heart-transforming, life-changing faith. That's what he's talking about when he speaks to us about these two Old Testament figures, Abraham and Rahab, who from a human perspective, you couldn't get two polar opposites. You see, you've got Abraham, who's a man, who's the, the father of the Jewish nation, who is almost uh, who is seen as like the father of faith. And you have Rahab, a woman who was a prostitute who was not a Jew, that she was a Gentile. And James intentionally chooses these two because he's saying to us, it actually doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter how insignificant you might feel, doesn't matter how you've come to faith, it doesn't matter at this point how holy your life looks, that if you are pursuing God, if you are pursuing a new way of living, that God calls us to step into, that if you are putting your faith into action and there is fruit, then God sees that. So I want to encourage you this morning, this is like a little side note, it doesn't matter who you are, that you are valuable to God. It doesn't matter your history, it doesn't matter your family, none of that matters. Just that we step into a life transformed. And so he speaks of Abraham and he gives us an example there and he gives us the example of Rahab as well who in a pagan city, um, believed uh, in Yahweh and, and protected the spies. And so he gives us those two examples. Many of us will know them. But then he says this, which is really challenging. He says in verse 24, so see we are shown to be right with God, or many versions will say we are justified by what we do and not by faith alone. And that's where a lot of us get stuck because we see that word justified and we think, how can that possibly be? Because I've been taught and I've been told and I've read that we're justified by faith and not by works. And here James is saying that you're justified by what you do and not by faith alone. You see, they're talking about this concept of being justified in different ways. An example of it might be that you one night you hear a noise out in your backyard and you go out there um, and you call the police because you see this shadowy figure. The police come and they're ready to cart off this person and you come out to see what's happening. And the person says to you, I'm, I'm... your new next-door neighbour, I was looking for my cat that had left the, left the fence. I'm really sorry. And you say, oh, thanks so much. Go in peace. You don't have to be arrested. You can go in peace. You see, that's the, uh, um, the immediate justification, that immediate pardon that Paul is talking about. 
And yet James is talking about justification in another way. He's talking about um, that idea where you, as someone comes to you with maybe a missions project or a business idea and asks you to invest some money and you invest money in it and then over the following years it grows and it expands and it becomes hugely productive. You see that your decision to invest through what's occurred has been justified, that it's been vindicated, that it's been proven to be a right or good decision. You see, Paul is using justification in the immediate pardon sense where James is using it in the ultimate proof sense. And that is why these two things fit together. That James is saying, let the fruit of your life demonstrate the root of your faith, that knowledge in Christ. And so this morning, as we, as we close, I want to uh, challenge you with two things. I want to challenge you with the following this week. All right? So make sure you remember it, or you do it, or you write it down. I want to challenge you with this that we need to constantly remind ourselves about the root of our faith. We have to play that narrative in our mind over and over and over again. Because in doing so, we'll keep um, on what Paul says is the, the right gospel. We won't be swayed by uh, inerrant teaching. We won't be confused by our own propensity to want to do things um, to prove um, uh, to make ourselves right with God. We also won't be putting obstacles in the way of people coming to faith. I see that so often that we create extra parameters as the church or as individuals around um, what we have to do to be saved. And in doing that, we make it impossible for people to come to faith. A few years ago, when I say a few, it's probably 15, maybe 20 years ago, we had a, a, at a previous church, we had a New Year's Eve service. And um, we used to get together and we would pray and worship as New Year's came in. And um, Every pastor's dream happened at that service because somebody randomly walking past the front door of this um, church in an industrial area at like 8.30 at night walked up the stairs, encountered what was happening and was saved. Now that is every pastor's dream. You just kind of hope someone like, randomly walks past the door and like comes in. Um, and, and this person was saved the moment that they, they were led um, to Christ and, and declared um, that he was the son of God, that he is the son of God. This person was saved. But what was amazing wasn't necessarily just that moment, was actually the six to 12 months that followed. Because as that person stepped into Christian community, as they began to pursue Christ, guess what happened? Through the power and the prompting of the Holy Spirit, the bits in their life that were out of alignment started to come back into alignment. They made some life-altering decisions because they realized that the way that they'd been living was not the way that God called them to live in freedom from sin. And I often think back to that because I think back to what might have happened if in that first moment when she, when she declared that, you know, I believe, that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe he's, he's died for me. I believe he rose again. I believe that he is Lord. If we or someone had have said to her, oh, woo up. Before you can pray that prayer, you need to go and fix all the stuff in your life. You need to go and make the, the, those decisions. Come back to us in a couple of months when you've sorted yourself out and then we can pray. 
imagine she never would have come back because we would have been asking that person to do something that none of us were able to do either, which was to fix our life, to have a life transformed before we had stepped into relationship with Christ. Because until we have the power of God, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, it is really impossible to live a life transformed. And that is what Paul is talking about. And so we have to remind ourselves over and over and over and over again, regardless of how long you've been a Christian, that the root of your faith is that we accept that we come to know God, to enter a relationship with him through accepting his lordship over our lives, through declaring with our mouths and believing in our hearts, and nothing more. But I also want to ask you this week to do something that's more challenging. I want you to examine your life. And I want you to examine in your, your life for the fruit of your faith. In the first week, we talked about um, James calling us to pursue growth, to pursue spiritual growth, to be serious about it. And this is the call that he gives us in this section of text. He's saying, be fully committed, fully sold out disciples of Christ. Don't be half in and half out. Don't have a partially committed knowledge, head faith, but not have anything in your life that is demonstrating that you're, you have been radically transformed. You see, um, I was talking a while ago to somebody and they said, oh, I have, a, ve- I have a, a faith, I have a very serious faith. It's just a very private faith. It's, it's just a, a, a faith that I keep on the inside and I don't like to show people, I don't like to talk to people about it, but it's a very sincere faith. Now, it's not for me to say where their life was with God, but looking from the outside in, there was no market of a life transformed. And you see, some of us are living uh, such, an in, uh, such a hidden or invisible faith that it can't actually be seen at all. And this is what James is talking about. He's, he's calling us throughout the book, and we'll see it in the coming weeks, and we've seen it in the last few weeks. He's calling us to prioritize the things of God. He's calling us that when you know Christ, then serve the body care for other people. He's calling us to live lives that demonstrate hearts transformed by Christ. He's calling us to be generous in our giving, to be compassionate in our thinking, and to be um, uh, kind in our actions. He's calling us to those things because those things don't transform a life, but they are evidence of a life transformed by Christ. And so I want to encourage you this week. Let's examine our lives. I'm doing it. I've had a bit of a head start because I wrote the message. So I'm doing it that I have seen over the last number of weeks and really over the history of this church, some radical living. And I've seen it and I've seen people who are a testimony to me as well, who are living lives of generosity, who are living lives of compassion. And so let's, let's be those people. Let's be people who aren't part in, part out, but let's be people who are committed to being disciples of Christ, who are committed to living a different way. Let's pray. Lord God, we um, thank you that your word is challenging. Uh, It is confronting, Lord, but it is compelling. It calls us. It speaks to us. Lord, though it was written such a long time ago, through the power of your Holy Spirit, it is alive and it is active. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to digest this message, Lord, that it would, um, those parts where we've heard from God's word that are a bit uh, 
confronting, that make us feel a little bit uncomfortable. Lord God, let um, not those things make us run from you, but let those things bring us closer to you. That we would become uh, people who seek the new way of living. Lord, that we would be people who have lives that are active, that are fruitful, that are completely sold out for you. And so, Lord, we pray in your precious name.